Good afternoon. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and this is the Healthy Options Program. Our guests today are Lindsay Piper and Marisa Weil from Maine Family Planning. We spoke with them last year, not long after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. We want to get an update on what's been happening here in Maine since then, and to discuss the status of reproductive health care now, and also how the state of Maine is responding to the severe restrictions occurring in many other states. Lindsay Piper is a nurse practitioner who specializes in sexual and reproductive health. She is the lead clinician for the Center for Reproductive Health at Maine Family Planning. In this role, she provides direct abortion services as well as guidance and training for healthcare providers. Lindsay also sees clients in her Belfast Maine Clinic for gynecological visits, gender affirming hormone treatments, abortions, and vasectomy. She has been in this field for over 20 years, working for independent feminist healthcare clinics and Planned Parenthood. Our other guest today is Marisa Weil, the Vice President for Development and Community Engagement at Maine Family Planning. Marisa has a master's degree in policy, planning, and management from the Muskie School of Public Service at the University of Southern Maine. And she's worked with Colby College, the Maine Hospice Council, and Center for End of Life Care, and the Homeless Service Center in Santa Cruz, California. I want to welcome you both back to Healthy Options today. Thank you for taking the time to be to be here. Oh, thank you for having us, yeah. Rhonda. Yeah, so, thank you so much. So let's let's dig dig in. And um, we're gonna have to do this. This is where the the healthcare and political world, of course, merge as we know, whether we want it to or not, here we are. So I want to um, get a good sense of what what the, what the really is at, at stake, what the healthcare is and what, what we want to maintain. And I, I also want to know what our, our, what's happening in the state house. So maybe uh, Marisa, we, we start with some of the good legislative successes. Have we had successes here in Maine? What's, what's happened? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we had a very, you know, successful legislative session in terms of advancing abortion justice in the state of Maine. Uh, the legislative session, I feel like, is always a series of wins, losses, and compromises, depending on where you're standing. Uh, but I think we were able to advance some really important abortion justice legislation for sure. Um, and so we could talk a little bit about that. And then um, we could talk yes, about yes. some. OK, great. Well, we can <laughs> dive right into it. Um, and I should say that for folks who are signed up for our e-newsletters, which you can do at mainfamilyplanning.org, we just sent out last week a fantastic legislative wrap up. Um, so the Reproductive Health Coalition, which is comprised um, in session generally of Maine Family Planning, Mabel Wadsworth Center, Planned Parenthood of Northern New England. Grandmothers for Reproductive Rights, Maine Women's Lobby, ACLU of Maine, uh, Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence, Maine Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Those are some of the um, recurring participants in the Reproductive Health Coalition. Uh, we had a package of five priority bills this session to advance abortion justice here in Maine for people in Maine. Um, and those bills included an act to protect the reproductive freedom of Maine people by preempting the field of abortion regulation. That was sponsored by Ref. Laura Supica. We had an act to protect healthcare professionals providing reproductive healthcare services. That was sponsored by Rep. Amy Kuhn. An act to remove barriers to abortion coverage in private insurance, sponsored by Matt Moonen. An act to ensure access to healthcare, sponsored by Rep. Melanie Sachs. And finally, an act to improve Maine's reproductive privacy laws, which was sponsored by Speaker Rachel Talbot Ross. Um, and so all of these different bills, they did pass through the legislature. They will go on to become main law. Uh, one of those, the last, which is LD 1619, definitely um, took up the most attention in the media. And that was the law that would remove the gestational viability ban. That was um, a lot of what people focused on for abortion care throughout pregnancy. And this is such an important bill because a lot of people didn't really think or realize that we actually do have abortion bans here in Maine and that people who needed abortion care later in their pregnancy were not able to obtain it in their own communities from trusted providers in their own state. Um, so that was LD 1619. It also cleaned up 
some sort of antiquated and potentially stigmatizing or invasive data collection policy, and it removed some criminal penalties on providers that only applied to abortion care and to no other healthcare procedures. Um, so that was kind of the one that took the most attention. But the other four bills that also advanced abortion justice are absolutely incredible. I'll highlight the bill sponsored by Representative Melanie Sachs, an act to ensure access to health care. What that bill does is basically if there is a health care merger or acquisition that requires a certificate of need from the state, that process has to examine the potential impact on that merger or acquisition to family planning, sexual and reproductive health care services and abortion services as a part of the scope of what they're looking at. And so that's a really important addition when you see throughout the country a lot of um, particularly Catholic hospital systems who are bound by what's called the ethical and religious directives for delivering care. And that restricts those hospital organizations from, from providing all kinds of care. It might be contraception, it might be tubal ligations, it might be vasectomies, it might be uh, patient preference for end-of-life care. It affects uh, lots of other health care, too. Uh, so that's really fantastic. The bill sponsored by Rep. Matt Moonen, uh, an act to remove barriers to abortion coverage in private insurance, is going to help so many patients in Maine by removing cost share and co-payment requirements for abortion care coverage in private plans. And that should go into effect, I believe, in January 2024. Um, and then finally, the last two bills that I mentioned, uh, an act to protect healthcare professionals providing reproductive health care services. Um, that law protects Maine healthcare providers from being penalized or dropped by malpractice insurance providers solely on the basis of providing abortion care. So that sort of seeks to protect them from um, out-of-state bad actors, particularly that may seek to leverage malpractice insurance as a way to punish abortion care providers who may have provided care for people who came to them from other states. Uh, and then finally, that last law that's on its way to being law right now, an act to protect the reproductive freedom of Maine people by preempting the field of abortion regulation sponsored by Rep. Laura Supica. What that does is um, preempt the field of abortion regulation so that towns and municipalities cannot declare themselves, quote unquote, sanctuary towns for the unborn, which is something that we have seen pop up as a tactic among anti-abortion activists to try to get small towns and municipalities to sort of symbolically declare themselves um, abortion free. And so it prevents small towns and municipalities, uh, villages from enacting that type of policy. So those were kind of the big five package of bills that we worked to pass successfully uh, in the legislative session this year. I'd also be remiss if I didn't shout out the enormous achievement we accomplished with paid family and medical leave. Um, this is going to take a while for it to build its structure and come into effect. But this is such an enormous victory for reproductive justice for folks in the state. Um, it was a really hard won coalition victory. And I'm just so thrilled that Maine Family Planning could be a part of that. Uh, and then, as I said, there were some hard losses, too. Uh, we saw hard and I, I think of these because we don't want to think of reproductive rights and sexual and reproductive health in this vacuum that exists separately from other issues, crucial issues of social justice. And so, you know, we know that we did not accomplish what the Wabanaki tribes sought to achieve with LD 2004, and that they are continually being denied improvements to their situation and sovereignty, and they are continually being held to the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act. Um, despite a lot of growing um, bipartisan work on this issue, um, it's for the moment still feels a little intractable. And so that's frustrating for so many of us. There was also a really important bill, LD199, part of the All Means All campaign that would have restored uh, Medicaid coverage, main care coverage for immigrant people. Last session, we were able to get that coverage restored for pregnant people and um, dependents up to the age of 25. But 
we were not able to get LD199 over the finish line this session. And that's just um, not a victory for health justice, obviously. So I think that's my long-winded legislative wrap-up. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was that was that was a, a brilliant uh, summation there. And we, Janet Mills did sign uh, many of these bills into law, and some others not into law <laughs> at this point. Um, so let's talk about then what that means in the field, uh, Lindsay. I think you can address this. What what access what does that really what does that mean because mm -hmm. we're, we're discussing abortion now but it's it's more than that in terms of when we talk about health care and reproductive health care Let, let's talk about what the kind of work you're doing and what you're seeing sure yeah so um that maine is a place where um abortion access could potentially be expanded is a wonderful first step and then what we'll need is for healthcare institutions to follow in kind and be able to have um, providers who are trained to help deliver later abortion services. Um, and, you know, it, healthcare systems have allowances for that to happen, even if um, providers are trained. Um, and so when something becomes law, we then need to follow with healthcare kind of catching up to um, be able to provide the things that are legal. So we saw that with um, in 2019 when um, advanced practice clinicians were now legally able to provide procedural abortion and medication abortion in Maine. Um, and then we would need, we've needed to increase our training for those providers to be able to have those hand skills to actually increase access for patients. Um, and so, you know, it's not, it doesn't end at it becoming law. We then need to um, be able to make it a reality by training. Um, and that's something that we're working on at the Center for Reproductive Health. Um, we are a training institution. And so we are always having amazing, talented, smart learners come through, whether they're nurses or physician residents or advanced practice clinicians, and um, they're coming to learn about what it is actually like to deliver uh, patient-centered, trauma-informed abortion care. And so that's a really unique opportunity that we have to, you know, help increase that uh, access and help increase that visibility of what this type of healthcare can look like from that patient-centered perspective. Um, we would like to continue to work on increasing our gestational age at our center um, for the services that we're able to provide. Um, we're working on a, I would call it a multidisciplinary um, team of folks who are doing some outreach to our emergency departments and urgent care centers so that providers who could potentially interface with our patients have more knowledge and more insight into how, uh, you know, what abortion care looks like, how rare um, complications actually are. And if our, uh, our patients do show up in these places you know, how they can be received in a trauma-informed fashion and what the anticipated, um, you know, care could look like. And so that's a team of us, um, you know, UMaine students, uh, Maine Family Planning, Mabel Wadsworth, um, Tufts Medical, Maine Track, they're, we're, we're working on doing this outreach um, just to enhance knowledge. Um, so, so, and yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, no, uh, uh, well, I, I want to interrupt. For, first off, for those who just tuned in, I'm Rhonda Feynman, and you're listening to the Healthy Options Program here on WERU. Our guests today are Lindsay Piper, nurse practitioner and lead uh, clinician for the Center for Reproductive Health at Maine Family Planning, and Marisa Weil, the Vice President for Development and Community Engagement at Maine Family Planning. I, I want to... Um, 
it parse out a little bit of what what you're talking about. There's some things that stood out as as you're talking about this education. When you're talking about trauma informed, and you're also talking about uh, training others to have access. What are, what are we seeing when when somebody comes in and and needs this kind of care? It when you're 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 using trauma in in a, in a way that I'd, I'd like to expand. What mm-hmm. what does that mean? Yeah, sure. Um, so if you think about, um, I guess the best way to describe it is we sort of take on a universal precautions type of approach. So when we in healthcare, we put, we don gloves with every patient when we are going to, you know, potentially come into contact with body fluids. And so we don't pick and choose who we wear gloves with. We just assume universally that we need to wear gloves with everybody. And so we kind of then translate that to um, we hold space for the high likelihood and potential that any patient coming into our care has experienced some sort of trauma. And especially in um, sexual and reproductive health, we know that that's an area of health where a lot of people have had some sort of trauma, whether it's micro trauma or you know, you know, very egregious trauma. And so coming into the interaction with the approach that we have a position of power as healthcare providers, and we need to use that with great integrity and responsibility so that we can create as much safety for our patients as possible so that when they share with us and disclose to us some of the challenging things that they've been facing, they feel respected and they feel like their care won't be compromised and they don't experience re-traumatization, um, which I think is something that um, can happen a lot um, or or has the potential to happen in healthcare um, and not, not purposefully necessarily, um, but if we're not kind of approaching it with this very tender um, attitude, then I think that it can happen without... Um, you know, if, if we don't acknowledge that potential. So okay. that's kind of in a nutshell, the trauma-informed approach. Oh, th- yes. Thank you for uh, clarifying, clarifying that. That's really uh, very important. When, what, what kind of um, thing, what, what are you seeing now? Because uh, in Maine, oh, we're, not every state has what, what we've just learned or is now established, uh, almost established law. Um, are you still are you seeing people coming from other states for miscarriage care or toxic pregnancy care or just what would be regular health care for a person in trauma as trauma as in a, a pregnancy not going well um, and not having access where they are? What, what are we seeing in, in your clinics? We have seen some out-of-state patients for abortion care, um, you know, in banned states. Typically, they have some sort of connection to Maine, whether it's family or they've lived here in the past. Um, Geographically, Maine isn't necessarily a safety state in the way that New York or Massachusetts might be, Um, you know, just as far as like airport access or highway access. We're just that far enough away. Um, so we haven't seen droves of out of state patients coming. And, you know, we also have to keep in mind that the patients who do make it to safety states are the patients who have the capital, the social capital, the financial capital actually have resources to get the care that they need. So again, you know, and I appreciate that Marisa started off with talking about justice versus just legality. So if we talk about reproductive rights as a framework, that is simply what's legal and what's not legal, whereas reproductive justice encompasses access and looking at somebody's actual human existence, you know, do they have the money to even fill a tank of gas? You know, and and we see that here in this state, for example, somebody who's living in the county um, or somebody who's down east may not have the means to to show up at an abortion clinic. Um, and so anyway, that, you know, that's sort of internally what we deal with um, in a rural state that, you know, we have widely varied, you know, economic situations for folks. Um, 
out-of-state folks accessing abortion in safety states is largely dependent on do they have the resources to even make it to where abortion is legal. Um, and I think that we have an amazing opportunity here in Maine, given that we have increased access, that um, if there were the the collective power and kind of the collective um, cooperation, we could actually increase access to folks across the country if if Maine Maine could become a place where people seek later abortion care. Um, but as it stands right now, um, at a certain point, we are still sending uh, patients out of state to Massachusetts, New York City, um, D.C., Maryland um, for later abortion care. And what does that mean here? What does that look like? What you, are these uh, um, pregnancies that have that are not viable anymore, or there's been problems, or how do, how do we look at those um, from that legislative point of view, sure. and a medical point of view? Mm-hmm. Yeah, later abortion um, happens pretty rarely. It's it's accounts for less than two percent of abortion, um, and well, not all of the stories are wildly dramatic. Um, many of them carry some pretty heavy baggage, including, um, you know, if somebody is 11 years old and, you know, afraid and and hasn't disclosed, you know, a sexual assault and subsequent pregnancy until a certain time because of fear, because of lack of knowledge, you know, because of lack of potential family support, you know, so that's, um, you know, that's certainly a scenario that I've discussed with colleagues, um, you know, and then other other things like, a you know, a patient who, you know, dearly wanted a pregnancy and then discovered at a date later than we are able to provide abortion that there was some incompatibility with life. Um, and rather than continuing the pregnancy and, you know, giving birth to a child who may or may not be able to breathe or, you know, and and having that experience, choosing to end the pregnancy so that um, the family can grieve and then, you know, potentially think of um, another pregnancy again in the future. So all of that to say, um, having to refer patients out of state rather than getting the care with their OB or in their community. Um, And so dealing with the devastating knowledge that the pregnancy that they wanted won't continue, won't be the child that they had envisioned. Um, And then also having to travel out of state for sometimes a three or four day um, visit out of of state and in a different clinic Um, and, you know, having to pay for the travel and having to pay for the services and for the hotel and all of that. So, um, you know, that's, that's something that we could potentially really help those folks heal by staying in state um, and being cared for in a really respectful and dignified way because it is, you know, a, a trauma as we were talking about. So those are some of the examples. Yeah. Um, and I would say later abortion typically happens when there is some sort of anomaly or when somebody lacks the resources, whether it's because they're young or because they, um, you know, are in an abuse situation or because they don't have the finances and it just gets to a point where, um, Mm. you know, they're in a really sticky situation. So it's, um, like I said, less than 2% of the time and pretty often um, a bit dramatic. I would say, yes. I'd like to talk about what, what are the, what is reproductive health care? Because it's not only abortion and it's not only that that aspect. What is it that you're offering that we are privileged at, at this point to have here in in Maine that that people we're fighting for uh, again in in the country? What well, you know we're, we're talking about this one aspect, but there's a lot more to it. And and Lindsay, um, can you let's talk about what what you what you you're seeing, what you're, what are you providing? Somebody comes in for birth control. You're also checking whether they have diabetes, you know, that, that kind of thing. Tell, you know, let's talk about what, what, what kind of care is really available at these clinics that are, are missing now in, in many States. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we oftentimes are the healthcare touch point for a lot of patients. Um, and so if a patient doesn't necessarily have a primary care provider or doesn't go to their primary care provider or uninsured, there are a lot of um, programs at different, you know, at different levels that patients can either use a sliding scale or, you know, if they have main care coverage and we are able to provide screenings like, you know, simple blood pressure checks that a patient may not know that they deal with an issue there. Um, or, you know, and a lot of education about heart disease, which is still the number one, you know, killer of Americans. And so we, you know, are able to just provide a lot of information and, um, you know, checking with our patients. Sometimes we do check their blood sugar, um, cholesterol, that sort of thing. Um, many of our sites don't provide primary care, but we also, like I said, um, if we have patients in the door, develop that rapport and kind of develop that level of trust with folks um, just by being a safe place to listen and and not be judged, then we are able to kind of over time um, increase their knowledge about ways that they could potentially, um, you know, improve their health by getting access to care. Like yesterday, um, I was able to take care of somebody um, using the main breast and cervical health program. Um, and so somebody who's uninsured doesn't have a steady income um, getting cancer screenings. Um, and so that's a really awesome program that I used when I, um, that, that a lot of Mainers use, um, you know, and, and we used it a lot when I worked at um, Mabel Wadsworth Center and also now here that I work at um, Maine Family Planning. Um, so this patient will get a mammogram that's taken care of and get the pap test that's taken care of. Um, and, you know, then we had a big conversation about the importance of colon cancer screening. Um, and, you know, we're also getting some labs checked um, as far as, you know, checking for diabetes and and the, those sort of things. Um, I would say I also um, have access to folks seeking vasectomy. Um, and so, you know, rather than providing just a, a birth control for somebody for, for half of the equation. I also am able to do help an entire family with their family planning goals. Um, so that's really neat because if somebody comes in, you know, gosh, I've tried every birth control under the sun. It doesn't work for me. We really don't want any more children, blah, blah, blah. Then I'm able to say, well, hey, you know, have you ever considered, you know, sterilization and you know, vasectomy is a pretty low impact procedure um, and, you know, very short healing time. So, yeah, it's just neat to be able to have that, um, you know, that broad of a um, skill set to be able to offer patients. Sure. Um, are you seeing more vasectomies? Last time we spoke, I think you were seeing an increase after, after mm -hmm. the Supreme Court decision. Is that continuing? Yeah, I do. And a lot of patients, it's it's really fun to be able to talk to them about their perspective. You know, folks come in and they'll say, well, you know, I see the laws are changing and I, I guess I figure it's it's my turn to kind of do something about this or, you know, we want to take care of this. And, you know, and people are, are afraid. People, I think they appreciate how tenuous um, our, our legal rights can be. Um, and so, you know, wanting to avoid a situation down the road um, if when laws change or or people's rights are taken away. I think people are noticing that rights are being taken away and, and they're wanting to kind of preempt that by yeah. So that so I've had very interesting conversations with you know people that I probably wouldn't have had those conversations with even you know two years ago. So that's sure. been pretty interesting. Folks are paying attention and I think that they even if they don't know the specifics of every law, I think kind of the wave of rights being removed is particularly um, jarring for most people that I see from, you know, all political spectrums, all walks of life. Yeah. Mar Marisa, I would like to bring you back in if, if you're with us here about um, now that the um, you can get birth control over the counter. Is that, uh, you, is that something that you're seeing shift some of the legislative or some of the the other work that you're doing is that will that shift something in terms so, of 
Thanks for that question, Rhonda. Let me, I would love to just add briefly to your last Please. question for Lindsay before I jump on to the recent decision around over-the-counter birth control. Um, just in terms of the broader question about reproductive health, because uh, as someone who does not have Lindsay's clinical experience, but who works with a lot of folks in the public, anecdotally, I hear so much from folks. We are experts in sexual and reproductive health care, and not every healthcare provider is far from it specialized training goes into this schooling, continuing education. And so a lot of issues that people face that um, are really challenging, like fibroids, endometriosis, polycystic ovary syndrome, um, things that are recurring issues are first diagnosed by specialty providers in sexual and reproductive health um, at clinics like ours. And that kind of uh, just being heard and being like believed that you have these these issues that are impacting your life is profoundly powerful. Um, and it's been really life-changing for so many patients to have a provider that not only just hears them and believes their experience, and then they can actually go on to get care that helps address the pain and you know hardships that they've been dealing with in their own body. Uh, and I would also just love to lift up because we haven't really had a chance to talk about it yet. The really pivotal and important role that um, sexual and reproductive health providers play in providing comprehensive care to LGBTQ plus folks. So I would say we are the the largest provider of gender affirming hormone therapy in the state. Um, Planned Parenthood and Mabel Wadsworth Center are also providers of this this important care that's so life affirming and life changing for folks. Um, and that really is in, inextricably like connected to these greater issues of bodily autonomy and being able to control our own bodies and our own healthcare journeys. Uh, and so I just wanted to kind of bring those into, into the conversation. With regards to the recent FDA decision um, approving OPIL, which should be coming on board, I believe, sometime next year, uh, that's going to be an over-the-counter progestin-only birth control pill sometimes called a mini pill. And that's absolutely exciting. There's a lot that's still being determined, as Lindsay was talking about earlier. It's one thing to have something be be available, but is it accessible? Is it going to be covered by insurances? Is it going to be affordable for an over-the-counter over, over medicine um, for people to purchase? So we don't know the answers to some of those things. Um, we're part of the Free the Pill Coalition, so we're part of advocating for accessibility in in that type of um, medication, prescription, well, not prescription in this case, but I would say it, it sort of also underlies the importance of abortion accessibility mm -hmm. always. You know, I mean, contraceptive failure happens and for folks who will be using the progestin only pill, you know, and Lindsay can tell me if I'm right or wrong here, but it's important that people take it every day, more or less at the same time of day. And people, you know, have busy lives and a lot going on. And so contraceptive failure happens. It's not a moral failure. <laughs> it's not anything that people have, you know, done wrong. It's very normal. And it's essential that abortion care be available, um, emergency contraception be available, the full spectrum of reproductive health care so that we can make the best decisions for our own selves, our own bodies, our own families, and have all of the tools and resources at our disposal to be able to make those decisions. Thank you for adding that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It uh, just, just if you just joined us here on WERU, I'm Rhonda Feynman. You are listening to the Healthy Options Program, and our guests today are Lindsay Piper, nurse practitioner and lead clinician for the Center for Reproductive Health and Maine Family Planning, and Marisa Weil, the Vice President for Development and Community Engagement at Maine Family Planning. We're discussing how the overturning of Roe vs. Wade uh, has impacted Maine and and all of us nationally as well. Um, thank you for bringing that in, um, Marisa. It is really very important to uh, to remind our listeners about, about that access piece and how this really plays out in real life, um, who can get what. But um, I, I, I wonder, um, 
it's there are so many positives of I would you say of being able to get your birth control uh, over the counter. Is there also a, a, a con that maybe you're not going to get some of the health care you need? Um, or how would you look at that, Lindsay? Or am I off track totally with that question? Um, so I guess, yeah. So um, if you can repeat that and then I can kind of answer it in pieces. Oh, I was just wondering if instead of getting some health care, but you know, even as I'm re repeating it, I, I I almost don't even like the question anymore <laughs> because um, because um, I I still don't want access to a, a, a self choice aspect of of sexual health to be uh, tied to uh, other kinds of of uh, uh, a limiting the ability if if you don't go to a doctor or you don't go to your your reproductive clinic you can't have your birth control um so i guess i'm just saying is there a fear or a a concern that some people may not uh get the um health care they need because well i don't have to go to the doctor now i don't have to go to the, my my mm -hmm. main family clinic now to get the birth control so i'm oh by the way i haven't gotten my high blood pressure taken care of or mm -hmm. i haven't noticed that I really do need to talk to my practitioner about something else happening in my life that I could get help with. I'm just, um, I mean, I think yeah. by and large, people who work in reproductive health care are thrilled that the pill is available yeah. over the yeah. counter or will become so, you know, once we work out some of the bugs. Um, I was very impressed. I went to a conference last year and watched um or I, I attended a discussion of um, free the pill and it was this decade plus long effort um a, a grassroots effort from many women of color um different organizations working on, at the community level to get this passed and to get the um the access that their particular communities were seeking and so I think what we'll see is that folks who wouldn't necessarily interface with healthcare due to past trauma with healthcare or general mistrust because of, you know, our sort of um, checkered past, if you will, um, as, as a healthcare institution with how we treat communities of color, um, people, you know, having that mistrust now will be able to access um, getting the pill. Um, and so that's been that seems very important um because i don't know that we're necessarily going to be missing folks who would come and seek care with us anyway and one thing i think is so important that that i still see even though you know i've i've been um a nurse practitioner for 15 years um that we still continue to need to delink um not becoming pregnant when you don't want to and doing your cancer screenings. Cause I think in the past Thank people, you. you know, would link getting your pap test with then the carrot at the end of the stick would be then getting your birth control pill. And unfortunately there are still healthcare providers who practice in that fashion. Um, and that's very paternalistic and, and potentially even, you know, I would say an abuse of power because like I said, not becoming pregnant when you don't want to is not anywhere in the realm of not getting cancer. So I think delinking those things is really important. Um, you know, you. so yeah, so I think that um, people will still come in for their cancer screenings, people will still come in for the education that they're seeking. And the progestin only pill is um, generally pretty safe. And so we don't have to worry so much about potential side effects and risks. But for getting other birth control um, items, people will still come in and see their healthcare providers. And I think if we continue to be safe places that give free information and accurate information and create safety and trust and establish rapport, people will come in and see us because they want to have those healthcare relationships. Um, and so I don't know that, you know, approaching it from that sort of scarcity mode will serve anybody. Um, I think it would do the exact opposite because that, you know, I think that that's kind of the problem um, in the first place. And so I think if we Great. just, yeah, so. 
that's an excellent clarification. That, that's, a, that's exactly what I was trying to say. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so um, can we, let's talk, a, can we talk about a little bit of clinical specifics? Um, when, uh, because we know some of these uh, procedures are not available to, to, to some people now. Um, what is an ectopic pregnancy? What what does a miscarriage look like? Why mm-hmm. why would a woman need what a DNC and what and what does or a person mm-hmm. need what what does mm-hmm. that mean? Right. So um, an ectopic pregnancy simply is um, a pregnancy that occurs outside of the uterus. And so, for any person who has a uterus who can become pregnant, um, that happens about. I would say less than 1% of the time in the general population, um, but it is considered a life-threatening uh, condition when it does occur because the tissue outside of the uterus is not created to you know, contain a pregnancy and to stretch and grow in the way that the amazing uterus is. And so what we worry about is rupture, um, especially the um, fallopian tubes, which is oftentimes where an ectopic pregnancy would occur. Um, And so we need to end that pregnancy either with medication um, or um, sometimes surgical intervention. And when I say ending it with medication, it's not the same medication that we use for medication abortion. Um, Medication abortion pills don't address uh, ectopic pregnancy um, to our scientific knowledge. So that would be, that's a separate service and that's a more emergent, that's generally um, either an emergency room visit or, um, you know, working with an OBGYN, um, you know, to deliver that care. And then an early pregnancy loss, um, you know, and that happens, I would say 15% of the time um, in early pregnancy. So it's a pretty normal thing to have happen. Um, And, you know, people have mixed feelings, you know, if they wanted a pregnancy, it can be quite devastating. Um, and for some people it can be a relief, um, because then, you know, if they weren't wanting the pregnancy or weren't ready to be pregnant. So, um, you know, it's a mixed bag as far as, um, you know, how patients feel about that scenario. In any case, um, oftentimes the body will, if, you know, once the pregnancy ends, the body will expel the contents of the uterus, on its own. Um, but that's also something that we can help with. Um, we can expedite the process or make it a little bit more predictable timing wise. Um, if we give patients medication, um, and use the same regimen that we do for a medication abortion. Um, and pretty rarely would somebody need, um, you say DNC, that's a dilation and curatage. Um, sometimes we could see people in an outpatient setting to do um, a quick procedural removal of the tissue of the ended pregnancy. Um, and I would say it's not so common that patients need to be put under general anesthesia and have that done in the OR. Um, although I think that that does occur with some frequency. Um, I think that, you know, many patients could be taken care of with light pain medication and light anxiety medication. and um, helped at the bedside. Um, And so early pregnancy loss is certainly um, a service that we are able to provide at Maine Family Planning. Um, And that's part of when I was talking about the emergency room outreach project that we're we're jointly working on. That's um, to help our colleagues um, know when to use medication versus when they need to intervene with a procedure um, and when they can refer back to us for a lower impact, you know, not going under general or, or using OR time or something like that. Oh, that's really excellent. Um, excellent uh, clarification. What is a medical uh, induced abortion? What is what is that? And what's the other option? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, specifically for abortion or or yeah. Well, well you can or we'll early pregnancy loss or early yeah. Pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So medication abortion um, consists of a two pill regimen. Currently, right now, um, mifepristone. Uh, essentially stops the pregnancy hormone um, from continuing the pregnancy. Um, it blocks that. And then um, a second medication that's administered, um, and this is all done independently by the patient, um, so they can do it in their own um, home at their time convenience. Um, so they swallow the first pill and then wait an allotted amount of time 
and um, either um, insert vaginally the second set of tablets or dissolve them in their cheeks. And that starts the cramping and bleeding and the uterus expels the contents of the uterus. Um, and that this is the same process that we would use, whether it's an early pregnancy loss or um, if it was um, an induced abortion. And um, we do this up to 11 weeks gestation. Um, and it's quite successful, quite safe. And it's pretty rare that we need to follow up with any um, other intervention. Um, there has been some, you know, if people are paying attention to um, some of our rights again, um, there's been some question as to whether mifepristone will continue to be um, available. And so we have um, a regimen where using only the second medication um, could be used by patients. And that's something that people um, globally use because in some places where abortion is not legal or people don't have access to these medications or the first medication, the second medication is used. Um, it's a longer process, you know, um, can take days and in some cases um, over a week and it can be pretty um, tough with side effects, um, nausea and other GI issues. Um, and so the hope is that we'll continue to be able to just use the, you know, the well-studied, very safe regimen of um, both medications, mifepristone and mesoprostol. Um, but we also know that we would still be able to deliver um, medication abortion with just the second medication um, safely and generally quite effectively. Um, it would just, yeah, take some more education for what the patients might experience because it would be a definitely more of a process. Yeah. So once again, our, uh, our politics interfering with our medicine here. Mm -hmm. um, um, Marisa, I'd like to bring you back in if, um, if you have something to, to add to that, but also um, I've been reading that certain pharmacies are, um, are refusing to dispense the medication, medical abortion medication for quote, uh, some uh, pharmacists and and stores um, for religious reasons. Has this come up in Maine, or um, they have their faith-based objections, so they're not filling prescriptions? Uh, I've been reading about this in the in other parts of the country. What's happening here, or do we know even? Put you on the well, spot. that's a great question, Rhonda, and I can't speak to any specifics where pharmacists have denied patients uh, contraception or abortion medication. Um, but it certainly is something that happens. Uh, pharmacists, healthcare providers, you know, are protected um, to express their religious beliefs. And that is can definitely be at odds with the delivery of evidence-based, you know, best practices healthcare. Uh, it's kind of like what we were talking about a little bit earlier with regards to, you know, reproductive health care options available from Catholic hospital systems. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So just like politics, and it's like those, um, the old adage about not talking about politics or religion, but we really have to when it comes to this because, you know, it restricts people's ability to get care. And oftentimes it's um, people have ideas about what abortion is or, you know, and they think maybe their situation isn't actually abortion, but, you know, clinically, that's the care that they're receiving. Um, so I, again, I can't speak to any specific incidences. I think overall in Maine, we have a strong streak towards, you know, independence and uh, individual liberty. And I hope that we continue in that way. Uh, the only thing that I would kind of add to some of the things that we've been talking about is just the the foundational importance of comprehensive sexuality education through the lifespan. And that's something that we really need to work on. It's a place where we definitely have room to grow um, legislative policy-wise here in Maine. We do still have an overall um, policy that emphasizes abstinence and um, it's kind of an opt-in versus opt-out. So the quality of sexuality education that folks get throughout the state is going to be very dependent on their school district, their school, the educators in their school. And there's a tremendous amount of reactivity around comprehensive sexuality education. So there are some great organizations like um, 
CECUS or Educate US that can give folks more information about what comprehensive sexuality education through the lifespan really looks like. Because people hear that, um, you know, kids in kindergarten or second grade are having sexuality education. And at that age, what that might look like is just knowing the proper names for your body parts and knowing, you know, about bodily autonomy and what a trusted adult is and, you know, not keeping secrets um, when people tell you to keep secrets. Um, and then it expands through the lifespan, obviously, depending on where you are in age. But I, I find overall, um, we have a tough time talking about sex, you know, and parents and caregivers, you know, are very uncertain about what they should talk about with their kids. But I just want to reinforce that there are resources out there. Maine Family Planning's Education Department is a great resource. There are resources available on our website because foundationally, all of this knowledge really starts with education in our own lives and in our own families. So knowing how to protect our health, knowing that how people get pregnant. Um, there are folks that we don't want to talk about uh, sexuality education until ninth grade, and then somebody walks in and is already pregnant, pregnant because they have no idea about how even their body worked or that this act could lead to that, you know? And so I think we really need to get more comfortable overall with talking about sex, our bodies, relationships through the lifespan. Excellent. Yeah. If, by the way, if you are just tuning in, this is the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. Our guests today are Lindsay Piper, nurse practitioner and lead clinician for the Center for Reproductive Health at Maine Family Planning, and Marisa Weil, the Vice President for Development and Community Engagement at Maine Family Planning. Uh, Marisa, I'm so glad that you uh, brought that in because it that, that knowledge is power and mm -hmm. and that all of the these fears of inappropriate understanding is is just that isn't it uh, more of a, a fear when things are age-based and appropriate we're just empowered absolutely yeah so um tell us a little bit more Lindsay um about uh what would what would be a typical visit do, do um do people come to you with um well, often the people like you go to any any place, you'll come in with a, an issue. Um, but what are you asking any other? Uh, tell me what, what is a, a typical visit like for mm -hmm. a, at the clinic at Maine Family Planning, or is there no typical? And that's <laughs> at all right. Yeah. Uh, so um, you know, I guess the first thing that comes to mind that I think of um, is what our local um, high school health teacher brings her kiddos in, her, her students in, and we answer some, you know, pretty widely asked questions about our services, um, what they can expect. We talk about Maine Sexual Health Privacy Act and what um, care minors can access. Um, and then when we are obligated as um, mandated reporters, you know, when we can't keep, you know, patient confidentiality. Um, and that's when um, somebody's being harmed if they are harming themselves or if they're planning to harm someone else. Um, other than that, in somebody's re sexual and reproductive health, that's um, a conversation between them and their healthcare provider. Um, and this is for minors under the age of 18. Um, and so we answer their questions, you know, give them a, a tour of our clinic um, just so that folks can get comfortable. And, and so what I often will say is that many people's initial visit um, is a clothing on visit. Um, and so, you know, I think that that can ease some people's concern because um, there are many circumstances where we don't need to employ an exam. Um, and I have a comfortable room set up with nice lighting and colorful posters and, you know, little like fidget toys um, so that patients can, you know, just kind of hang out, ask questions, get information, um, as Marisa was saying about about their menstrual, menstrual cycle, about how you know, how pregnancy occurs, um, you know, what their actual risk is for sexually transmitted infection, um, those kind of things. And um, so we, ch we check a blood pressure, we get a, um, a health history, making sure that, you know, we're checking on what medications they're taking, um, you know, 
what their allergies are, that sort of thing, and then addressing the specific questions and concerns that they're bringing to us. Um, if somebody's coming in with symptoms that are concerning, um, we'll often then talk about what an exam would look like. Mm -hmm. And I never make somebody do an exam, but I often will recommend that I do an exam if it will yield the information that I need to take good care of them. So patients are still in the driver's seat um, when it comes to that. So if somebody's coming and presenting with pelvic pain, generally I would anticipate doing an exam, but if somebody feels really strongly about not having an exam, then you know I'll impart as much information as I can, gather as much data as I can. And then maybe it's just that first visit, I show a patient what a speculum looks like and talk about what to expect from a pelvic exam and that I haven't made them do one, quote unquote, made them do one, they may well feel like they can come back next week or later that week to actually have an exam because they know that their healthcare provider um, is respecting their choices and, and what they want. And so that's, um, you know, that's definitely an approach that we take that's very important to us. That is very important. Um, uh, Marisa, can you talk a little bit about that that law about the private about privacy? Um, I'm looking here at the legislative, and then now that Lindsay brought that up, um, isn't there uh, wasn't there something about privacy? Uh, well, first, I just want to applaud everything that Lindsay just said because I'm yes. over here, and it was like the Zoom reaction of the clapping hands. You know, yes, absolutely, making patients feel comfortable in situations where they may have trauma responses, they may have fear, um, is so important. And I just want to applaud all of the providers at Mean Family Planning and everywhere who create a space where patients can feel safe and not like they're being treated like um, just a, a nameless, faceless appointment throughout the day. So I'm just... It, Fill, yeah. It fills my heart whenever I hear providers talking like that. Um, yes. So to your question, I'm not entirely sure because privacy comes up in a lot of the legislation. And so that's, that's it, fine. Um, it was the LD 1619, um, an act to improve Maine's reproductive privacy laws. Um, that was sort of, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, the, the big bill that drew uh, the most attention uh, this legislative session. Well, you know what, Marisa, we're going to have to leave it there because I'm looking at the clock and I'm so caught up in our conversation, I realize we have actually run out of time. So I think we'll just applaud all of us, all the work that you are doing and acknowledge what, what's happening here in Maine and the hard work and the stories and acknowledging all of the stories around the country as well. And uh, thank you for both of you for bringing us up to date on what's happening here. And uh, wow, I can't believe the time has gone. Our guest today on Healthy Options uh, today has been Lindsay Piper and Marisa Wild from Maine Family Planning. Thank you again so much for being with us and acknowledging um, all, all the, the status of what's happening in Maine and, and also everything that's acknowledging of, of what's happening around the country. And um, you can find links to the show, to other information that was mentioned, as well as our previous interviews on the Public Affairs Archives for Healthy Options at weru.org. Thanks Joel Mann and Amy Brown at WERU for engineering support, Petra Hall for production assistance, and as always, thanks to all of our WERU listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in health.